Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, I'm going to have Miss Eden begin reading to you in Mark 15. Mark 15, 12 through 32 reads, Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated, place of a skull. Then they gave him wine, mingled with myrrh, to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription on his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. My friends, our world is broken. Many of us arrive today with a, a sense of divine discontentment as we've looked at what's happened in our world recently. A divine discontentment really about the brokenness on a a massive, large, global scale. But also for so many, I think you probably, it's true, came in even with the divine sense of discontentment, even about the things on a much smaller scale that you face personally. Even some of the things maybe that you face personally that other, other people around you are unaware of. A divine discontentment is something I think that every follower of Jesus has to live with. Because your scriptures teach you that we live in a tension of a now and not yet. That Jesus said his kingdom was at hand. The idea is that it's so close you can reach out and touch it. And yet we're still waiting for our king to come back and to redeem and restore all things in totality completely and reign forever. Yes, he's reigning. Yes, we have a good God, but we live in a tension of a now and not yet. I think it's not just followers of Jesus, though, who live with a sense of divine discontentment. I think every human being feels that same way, that God's pre-wired us with an understanding that there's something broken, that there's something that's unjust, that's not right. All of us wake up in the morning, especially mornings like over the last couple of weeks, where we feel that sense of discontentment. We long really for what God has ultimately promised to us. Since mankind first rebelled and started out our pattern of self-destruction, God stepped in in those early moments and promised that he would make all things right again, that he'd make all things new again, that he would redeem and ultimately restore all of creation, which means the earth, that's the dirt, the planet itself, but it also means the systems in our world. It means society. It means each and every person is who he's promising, not just to redeem, which he does on a cross, but ultimately to restore when he sets up a throne literally on the earth and where he judges the world once and for all. God's always had this end goal in mind. He's always been clear about it right from the beginning, right from the Garden of Eden itself. And if you're looking at the text we just read, 
we're watching that goal begin to be accomplished. That's what we're seeing here. We're not seeing a, a powerless person who's being crushed under the power of, of those who reign or rule over him. No, we're watching God take his rightful throne again. We're watching his goal begin to be accomplished. In fact, if you fast forward all the way to the end of the book, you get a very clear depiction of what God's end goal is. It's found in Revelation chapter 21 where it says this. It says that he who's seated on the throne says, I make everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. God's end goal for himself at the end of the book, which is the end of all things, is that he will reign over creation once again. And did you catch what his goal is for you? It's that you will be called his child. That's his goal for creation, to be back united with them on the most precious and intimate of terms that you and I in our human existence ever experience, the connection of, of a child with its parent. We're watching and reading now that goal begin to be accomplished in the story that Eden just read to us. It was C.S. Lewis who said this. He said, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I want to talk to you today about the king and his kingdom. And we're going to spend our time discussing the cross actually over the next several weeks. We're going to talk about what Jesus endured on the cross, and we're going to talk about what Jesus spoke from the cross, and we're also going to talk about what the cross accomplished for us. But today I want to talk about what leads to it, and really what Jesus is accomplishing by it, the idea of his kingdom being established. Because it's not just the joke of the hour, as you just saw in the story, while Jesus is suffering, that they mock him as king. It would even be the crime that's listed on the cross above him that he'd be punished for. All hail the king of the Jews. You see, in our story, though, Christ was not merely flogged. He was mocked as just that, as a king. Oh, look at your king. The other gospels make it clear that what Pilate does here initially is he's, he's willing to turn Jesus over to be scourged, to be, to be beaten, but he's hoping that the crowd would turn and have some compassion and no longer push for an execution. And so Pilate could then release him. And so he turns him over first to be flogged before he would later turn him over to be crucified when the crowd would continue to demand it. And if you've seen the film, The Passion of the Christ, it puts imagery in your mind that's hard to shake of this scene playing out. In fact, the wording that's describing uh, the beating that the Romans gave make it clear that Jesus would have been secured in some form or fashion that would have either hunched him over or hung him with his arms outstretched so that the skin on his back and his chest would have been pulled tightly so that each blow that was laid on his skin weren't softened in any way as his, as his body was contorted in such a way to leave him without any way to protect himself, probably tied down over some sort of a, a stump or some sort of a stone. The whip that would be used was something that had several long leather straps that came off it that would have metal balls embedded in the end of it. And if you believe the archaeologists who pulled out of the ash of Pompeii one of these ancient flagellum, what they found is that it also had inside of it glass and sharp objects. So it wasn't just the weight that was added to the end of those as a blunt force object, but that there was something with it that was beginning to rip into flesh with each lash that a, a person or Jesus in our story is receiving, that it's not just with blunt, blunt brute force, but it's also ripping into his flesh and it's beginning to tear his, his own body apart. The Jews had a restriction that it was 40 lashes that were a justified beating for a person. And because they wouldn't break their own rules, they decided that 39 would suffice in case they accidentally missed counts. They didn't want to push it and break their own law. But this is the Romans, not the Jews, who are beating Jesus. We have no way of knowing for certain how many lashes Jesus would receive. And if this was not initially Pilate's 
goal to punish Jesus and send him as an execution, then we'd assume that what Jesus receives here, because Pilate's not intending initially that Jesus would go from here to a cross to die, we assume that if this is the full brunt of what Jesus would receive, and they're not concerned about trying to get him to a cross to have his his execution take place for hours or even days, we'd assume then that the beating that Jesus would receive would be far worse even than the one if he was already condemned to die because they'd want his agony to be, be drawn out as long as possible there. And all of this comes after Jesus has already been beaten by the hands of the religious leaders, where they placed a bag over his head and they beat him mercilessly, mocking him, saying, prophesy now, tell us who hit you. Where we talked about that pit there in Caiaphas' house that he would have been lowered down into after receiving blows and even a term that Dr. Luke uses that describes the cutting of his flesh. We assume his beard even being ripped out. Jesus has already arrived at this scene disfigured and bloody and battered. And now he has two Roman soldiers, one on either side, taking their turns, exchanging from one to the next blows upon his back and flipping him over and blows across his chest as well. There would have been a third soldier placed in front of him, according to historians who talk about these floggings that would take place. And the one in front of him would have a utensil and something to write on. And his job was to listen for the one who's being beaten to confess a crime. And for every crime that they'd confess, they'd write it down. And then he'd signal to those who are dealing out the blows that the next blow should be taken easy, that the next one should have some mercy. But if you refuse to confess to a crime, then each blow was more intense than the previous one, and the prophet had rightly foretold like a lamb before its shears is silent. He'd utter not a word. He had no crime, no sin to confess, except my own, mine that he was being punished for. Christ was not merely flogged that day. He was mocked in that moment as the king of the Jews, And if you travel to the ruins of the building that this takes place in, the Praetorium in Jerusalem, what archaeologists have found etched into the stone floor, the old Roman road that's there, is a game, literally a game board, that's marked and explained as the game of the kings. And there's a wheel of punishment on the game of the kings where these Roman soldiers made a sport out of the way that they would mock and flog people, and Jesus would become the butt of the joke and be forced to play the game where they would mock him as a king. You can go there still today or even just have Professor Google save you the long airfare fee and or long flight and just look it up and see the image there on the ground. And so by the time that they're done with him, a crown of thorns has been placed on his head and another gospel tells us beat into place with a meter-long club. His royal robe is placed on his back, draped over his his shoulders, a scepter placed in his hand, a symbol of power and authority that's been put there to mock him. And then they bow before him and introduce him, oh, all hail your king. But oh, the irony, the irony of the cross, the irony of this very moment, for this truly was This was the coronation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's crazy to think about. This would be how our king, in fact, would establish his kingdom and begin again the rule of God amongst men. One Anglican theologian, I've been reading one of his writings about the cross, he said it this way, he says, that kingdom is not delayed by crucifixion. Rather, crucifixion is the way that this king begins his rule. Please hear me, crucifixion did not stop or even delay Christ's mission to reign again over creation. The cross would enthrone our king and begin again the reign of God amongst men. It established a whole new administration as it stripped the former regime of its power. You see, last week in what you discussed as a church was the gospel being predicated by the law. The good news being preceded by the bad news, me being guilty and and deserving judgment. But the good news, the gospel being that Christ took that judgment upon himself. But what your text today is teaching you, it's reminding you the totality of the gospel is massive in scope. It's bigger than just being forgiven of sins. It's that Jesus has started a kingdom and that I'm brought into a family and made a part of that kingdom that I belong with. 
You see, Jesus at the beginning of Mark's gospel in verse 14, it says he goes out preaching and what he preached was the gospel of the kingdom. These two ideas cannot be separated from each other. The gospel and the kingdom, the good news was that a king was coming. You see, what Jesus accomplished on this day that we're reading about can't be reduced to merely being a personal savior for my sin, for that is far less than him also simultaneously being a triumphant king who establishes a kingdom that's contrary to and even topples our world system. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is what the church through the ages has understood, that, that they believe that to call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, did not mean that you merely got a get-out-of-jail-free card. It was saying that you entered into a whole different paradigm for life, that you were rescued from sin and Satan, yes, and that you at the same time were brought into a whole new way of life as a follower of Jesus and citizen of what's been called the upside-down kingdom. So think with me today for a few minutes about the king's coronation, because that's what this story is really all about. It's about the king's coronation. And there's a handful of things I want you to think through about Jesus' kingdom as we're seeing Jesus in this moment literally crowned a king. The first is this, the irony of his kingdom. The first thing I want you to think about is the irony of his kingdom. Professor Google defines irony in this way. He says, a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the characters. In our story, our focus shifts towards these Roman soldiers, and seemingly the fate of Jesus seems to rest in their hands. And it's now their turn to mock and abuse Jesus. But the way that they choose to treat him is incredibly ironic. They fail to see the significance, but every reader, everyone outside of it can all see the significance of mocking Jesus as a king. Pilate himself will say, here is your king of the Jews. The crime posted above his head, the king. And now the Roman soldiers jumping in on the joke, playing their game of the king's. It's a whole garrison, some say about 600 soldiers, who were brought in to watch Jesus be mocked here. And in their minds, a kingdom, it could not be established without the use of brute force. And they're now proving, this is what they're doing, how much more powerful Rome is than Jesus. How much stronger Rome is than Jesus. And in the end, they mock him and say, look how stripped down you are. Look how beaten and battered you are. Look how unrecognizable you are. Now, look at yourself, you, O king, placing a robe on his back and a crown of thorns on his head and bowing and spitting on him. But their joke about Jesus being a king is incredibly ironic. While they think the joke is on Jesus, we begin to see, for us the readers, the joke, in a sense, is really on them. That this is the King of kings and lords, Lord of lords. That this is the one who possesses ultimate authority, the greater than Caesar, the, the most powerful force, more powerful even than the Roman Empire. You might remember how Mark begins his gospel. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember that insipid is a one-sentence, power-packed summation of the entirety of his message. And when he says he's the son of the living God, he's not just talking about Jesus' deity, but he's pointing a contrast between Jesus and Caesar and showing you that Jesus is a greater than Caesar, has more authority even than Rome because the coins in their pockets had Caesar's head on it with that wording, the son of God. Jesus is now in this moment living this out. And while everybody thinks that that God, our God, Caesar, the Roman Empire, the biggest, most massive, immovable force, some would liken it to a mountain. But Jesus has told his disciples with faith, even the mountains could be thrown back into the sea. All of a sudden now we're seeing Jesus, the king. And while they're demonstrating their power, they think over Jesus, they're really playing right into God's eternal plan. And there Jesus, we find him trembling before them crown of thorns on his head, the robe on his shoulders, his beard having been ripped out. His face is swollen and disfigured from the beatings he took at the hands of the religious leaders before this. His chest and back, even his legs are ripped apart, showing flesh and blood still dripping from those wounds. And he's looked at with no pity in their eyes. 
He's viewed by all of them, no doubt, as being weak and overpowered. He's done for, they thought. Roman historians reference people who'd been through floggings like this. They refer to them as the half-dead. The reason that the ancient historians refer to them that way is because it was more believable to people who saw them to believe that they were dead than living still. Because everyone understood they got one foot in the grave by the, end the, t- by the time uh, that their flogging had come to an end. They called them the half-dead. And here is Jesus before them in that state. There he stood trembling and disfigured. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 52 verse 14 had prophesied that his visage, his appearance was marred more than any other man and his form more than the sons of man. You need to understand this. It wasn't that they no longer could recognize which man they were looking at in looking at Jesus. It's telling you that they no longer saw him recognizable as even a man at all that he was so beaten and, and, and bloody, that he, he was so battered by what had taken place that Isaiah had rightly prophesied. People would look and go, what is that? In this moment, he looked so weak and like such a failure. And I think even today, Jesus is still viewed the same way, as a failed revolutionary because of the cross. But the revolution of Jesus was kick-started at the cross. The moment truly is the king's coronation. The irony of the moment was that while they still mocked him, he's winning back creation. He's setting up his kingdom. This is the irony of his kingdom, that what looks like failure and defeat is God's ultimate triumph playing out. There's a second thing I want to remind you about his kingdom, though, and that's the eternal anticipation of his kingdom. The eternal anticipation of his kingdom. This was a slow-coming, long-awaited moment for all of creation in fulfillment of prophecy that God would come to take back creation and he'd come to set up his kingdom. Those are the things he had promised, to take back creation and to set up his kingdom. Remember the bookends of the narrative of the Bible itself. In Eden, everything is good rather than marred. Every person in each relationship are whole rather than fractured. And that is because God is enthroned over creation. And then at the end of the book, in the place that we call heaven, everything is good again and every wrong is made right and all of creation is whole again. And that is because God is once again enthroned over all of creation. But in between those two moments, you have this weird moment in the life of Jesus, one of the strangest moments of all in his life. When he's being tempted, and in Luke's gospel, it it records for you an exchange between he and Satan back and forth. It says in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, Then the devil, taking him, Jesus, up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. The strange thing about this exchange is that Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't rub his head and go, Oh, that's cute, little man, Like, but this is not yours to give. I mean, if after service I said, hey, walk with me to the parking lot, and I went and found the most expensive car in the parking lot, or let's say a neighbor's parking a Lamborghini there, and I say, hey, listen, I want to sell you my car, and I'm going to cut you a great deal. If you can give me how much cash you got, you got 60 bucks cash? If you give me 60 bucks cash, the car is yours. At some point, you'd laugh and be like, you're delusional. This is not your car, and I'm not giving you my money, because you understand I don't have the right to sell that because it doesn't belong to me. I don't have the authority over that. I've not been given those keys. But in this exchange, there's no such response that Jesus gives to Satan's bold claim. The claim that he, that Satan, owned the right and title to the earth, it was, in a sense, a true statement. It was his to give, his to sell. Remember, God chose to share his dominion with us over all of creation as his image bearers. And this world was then forfeited to Satan when mankind joined his his rebellion. And when sin entered God's good world and ruined it. Remember, everything went wrong when, for the very first time, mankind reached up to take hold of what was God's and God's alone. The right to define right from wrong, good from evil. And ever since that day, mankind continually self-destructs as it continually finds itself determined to self-define what's right and what's wrong. In the Bible, Satan is called the God of this age. He's called the prince, the ruler of this world. 
And when the Bible says that he's the God of this world, it's not saying that he and God are equal or counterparts. It's not saying that if they arm wrestle, we don't know who wins. No, at the end of the book, when Jesus goes and finally deals with him and judges him for all of eternity, he does not even go himself. He sends an angel instead. They are not equals. He's a created being. Listen, and we know this, that God is the king of the ages. The king of kings and lord of lords, Revelation 19 calls him. We know that Jesus is in possession of all authority in both heaven and earth, he said in Matthew 28. But since the moment mankind had rebelled, this world was led by and subject to Satan's kingdom, a kingdom of sickness, of decay, and of death. But Jesus came back here to to take back his kingdom, to take back creation, to set up a kingdom. So how would he accomplish that? How would he do it? How would he take back creation and set up a kingdom? Well, the prophet Isaiah, beginning in chapter 52, he explains that he would do it through a substitutionary death written some 800 years before Jesus arrived. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings so shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by man. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off. He was killed, it's telling you, from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall live again. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How would he do it? How would he take back creation and establish his throne? He'd accomplish it through a substitutionary death. It's John the Baptist pointing his direction and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who's here to take away the sin of the world. His goal was not just to make a way for me or for you to be forgiven. His goal was to redeem all that was lost, to take back what was rightfully his and to set up the reign of God amongst the, the, the children of men again. The moment of Jesus' suffering was more than just a long-awaited moment. It was an eternally anticipated moment. God knew all along this day would come. He knew that this is what it would take. As we've quoted often, Revelation 13 references Jesus as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth itself. Oh, remember the irony of his kingdom. 
As they mocked him, he's winning creation and setting up his kingdom again. Remember the eternal anticipation of his kingdom. It's what all of creation has always longed for. But, but notice, please, a third thing, the subversive nature. The subversive nature of his kingdom that he came to subvert, to overturn an established system or institution, that he was coming to turn things right side up again. You see, a kingdom is an administration. It's a way of ordering things and getting them done. It's when a new coach takes over a team, he brings in his own administration. If your company is acquired by a new parent company, they slide in a new administration. It's when a new president is elected, he brings with him or her a new administration. A new administration means things are different now. Not just the way that we get things done, but also our list of priorities and goals are forever changed. Our values with a new administration are reordered. The things that are most important land at the top of that list, and things that no longer of importance find themselves at the bottom of that list. And when Jesus set up his kingdom, he invited us in, and what he invited us to do was to live like he did, which meant to reorder our values, didn't it? In fact, he flipped the world's values upside down. There was a reversal of values that took place. See, ever since humanity first enthroned self in place of God, our world has been subject to a broken set of principles. I mean, think about this. Our world's built upon unchanging principles throughout all of human history. The players may have changed, but the playbook's always been the same. The rules have remained the same through all of those changes. The world's built upon these broken systems, a hierarchy of principles where greatness is defined by power and by control, by success and therefore superiority, by reputation and admiration, by doing whatever it takes to build that kind of an identity because that's what greatness is defined by. We call this in our current part of history. We call this the right side up kingdom because we recognize those things pay off depending on what you want in life. To live that way and successfully get those things, they work in our world. So it makes it seem that this is absolutely natural to live this way. And let's be honest, if this is all there is, if there's no eternity, then yeah, go do it. Pursue power and accolades at any cost to any person. It doesn't matter if this is all that there is. The problem is these things will disintegrate, not just in heaven, but even, even now on the earth. They don't give lasting satisfaction. It's, it's that beauty disintegrates. It's that achievements, they, they, they disintegrate. Someone else's name will end up on the plaque eventually. It's your influence or people's admiration of you will also disintegrate. In this right-side-up kingdom, as we like to think it is, because it seems like this is how things work, who would value things that Jesus valued, like service or weakness or selflessness? Those things are occupational suicide. If I live that way, I'll never advance at the rate that I could if I lived a different way. But we're a part of a different kingdom with a different administration, with a different set of values. But if I live that way, it's a death to my need for admiration. It's going to keep me from reaching the top, from kicking back and finally relaxing. But if the now, please hear me, if the now is not all there is, Jesus invites you into the upside down kingdom where he has reversed values. And if you're truly a follower of Jesus and a member of his upside down kingdom, then you learn to cherish and value self-sacrifice over self-absorption. Then we'll cherish and value meekness and humility over success and superiority. We'll cherish and value mercy and peace and vulnerability and love over reputation and admiration because we cherish Jesus over ourselves. We don't reside in this upside down kingdom of Jesus simply by choosing to value a system. We reside in this upside down kingdom of Jesus when we choose to cherish and value a person, Jesus himself. And as members of his kingdom, we have something more powerful than just some ex external example of what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. Instead, we have the king himself living inside of us, transforming and shaping us into his image. One of the things Jesus would say about his kingdom is that it's like leaven. Think about leaven in a loaf. You put yeast in a loaf of bread, it permeates the whole thing and then begins to inf influence the whole of the loaf so that it begins to morph and take shape. 
The kingdom of God is like that inside of my life, beneath the surface where no one sees. God is moving and working in my life, transforming me from the inside out, developing me the, developing in me the things that he desires for me. Listen, there's a subverse, subversive nature to the kingdom of Jesus. In verse 31, they were right when they said, <clears throat> Jesus, he saved him. He, uh, remember, as they mock him, they said, they said, Jesus, he saved others, yet look at him. Himself he cannot save. Because he could not, think of it, save himself in this moment and others. Because he was there on the cross giving himself for others. Their words, although meant as an insult, were a truthful statement about the chilling reality of what was playing out before their very eyes, the love of God on display. Jesus didn't just set some example, though, because if he did, gosh, that would crush us. No, he died instead as a lamb to save us. In this moment on the cross, Jesus is getting what you and I deserve so that we can get what he deserves. See, here's the key to that subversive kingdom. It's that when you understand what Jesus has done for you, it frees you. When you begin to experience the power, the transforming power of the gospel, understanding what Jesus has done for you and his spirit moving inside of you, it frees you when you realize that you are made righteous by grace and not by your achievements. It frees you when you know that you are known and loved in Christ. It frees you and changes the way that you begin to look at power and at money and its status, because they don't have to control you any longer. You're liberated from their crushing weight. You're freed once and for all, not just from your sin, but freed from the entrapments of life in this earthly kingdom, where the rules are always the same, but the rulers change. Jesus is still viewed by many, even today, as a failed revolutionary because of the cross, but Jesus' revolution was kick-started at the cross in this moment. But why does that even matter? Because the world's current administration of things crushes people. That's why it matters. And because it's so deeply broken, it will affect you eternally, leaving you separated from God. That's why it matters. Because both in your future and in your life today, it will leave you terribly empty. But Jesus sets people free. There's a subversive nature to his kingdom. A fourth thing very quickly. The transcendence of his kingdom. It's superior. It's unequaled. It's unmatched. It's otherworldly. It's transcendent. It's not limited by anything. It transcends everything. Individual lives, cultures, and continents. It, it, it transcends even time itself. I believe the main reason the world is so very unhappy and so broken and messed up is because people don't know that they have a God-given purpose. And therefore, they don't then live out that God-given purpose. They live instead under the crushing weight of the world's system, of its administration, of the way that it has ordered values. And that crushes all of us. I mean, think about the message of the kingdom. It does not merely provide hope for the future. It provides purpose for the present, to be a part of the kingdom of God. I mean, for me, I, there's no end to the amount of articles that I find online or that people send me written by church leaders who are so concerned about the future of the church in North America. And the reason that they're so concerned is that the, the church has seemingly failed to reach and capture the affection and the loyalty of future generations, of millennials and of Gen Z. But I think that these generations are primed and ready for the gospel. Because think about this, and you might feel like I'm unfair in this stereotype, but stereotypes are always unfair, but also mostly true. Uh, think of the highest values between the two most recent kind of more prominent generations. If we just were to contrast what we would classify as baby boomers and then millennials. For baby boomers, what is the highest value? Well, baby boomers are known for, for going after, for pursuing the white picket fence, the all-American dream with the 2.5 kids and a dog behind the fence. And, and so security and safety 
is the highest value. And because of that, you have people, a whole generation, who grew up being a company man, staying with the same job in order to maintain security and to have things be balanced. That That's the stereotype of that generation. Now think of millennials. Everybody rolls their eyes at them because their stereotype is that they're anything but that. That they'll trade security for significance. I want to go work for the startup company rather than being a company man like my father was for 30 years working for that business, that large corporation. Forget that. I want to go work for the little startup. I want want to have a different version of the American dream. I'm happy to work with less security being promised, maybe even for less money, as long as I feel that I'm making a difference in the world. I'll go buy fair trade, free range, cage free, don't even know what any of those things mean. Whatever, as long as it means I feel like I'm leaving a positive footprint on the earth. Think about this, please. We're so concerned about those generations. I would say the heart that longs for significance finds its place in the kingdom of God. The heart that longs for significance finds its rest in the kingdom of God. The heart that longs for significance finds joy in the kingdom of God because you're a cog inside the machinery of something that's greater than you. And that's what so many people long for today. Remember, as C.S. Lewis had put it, as I opened with, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Oh, remember, if heaven's king is alive in me, then I'm not only a member of that kingdom, I am also the means of the world's experience of that kingdom. The world's meant to get a taste of the kingdom of God through their interaction with heaven's king, who I say and claim resides in me. We become their glimpse of what the heavenly kingdom will be like and the way that we treat them. Where they go, this is different than where how I'm treated in every other setting, in every other place, with every other person I interact with. You treat me different. Where you're not trying to use me for what you can get out of me. No, instead you seem to be willing just to give and to support and to care for me. You sit with me and it's a different experience. It's like being a part of a different system completely. We call it the kingdom of God. What I'm telling you is really simple. We'll, we'll live with different vocations. We live with the same calling if we're followers of Jesus. We might have different vocations or professions as followers of Jesus, but we share the same purpose as members of a kingdom and ambassadors of that kingdom that we claim citizenship to. To be a member of his kingdom is to allow the world system to be overturned in my life and to let the world see and taste that. To experience it, that my desire, my greatest desire is to know him, to know God, and then to make him known in other people's lives. Oh, there's irony in this moment. There's irony always in the kingdom of God. While they're mocking him, he's winning creation and setting up his kingdom. Oh, there's an eternal anticipation of this kingdom. Please remember this morning his promises that we still anticipate him fulfilling. There's an eternal anticipation. There's a subversive nature to his kingdom. It turns things right side up. Let Jesus free you this morning from the crushing weight of, yes, the law of God, but also the crushing weight of the rat race of society. He frees us from that. Oh, the transcendent nature of his kingdom. My friends, we cannot allow ourselves to become so busy and so preoccupied that we fail to fulfill our God-given eternal purpose as ambassadors commissioned to make disciples. We have to fight. This is our rebellion against the system that we find ourselves living in. We have to fight against living a busy life so that we can have unhurried encounters with people God sends our direction. The last thing is very quick. It's just the radical weapon. Just. It's the radical weapon of Jesus' kingdom. The radical weapon of his kingdom. We've established and and we've agreed in the past that Jesus' weapon of choice would not be a sword. But what would he use then to overturn the world system? Because all modern and ancient revolutionaries, they would all do the same thing. They'd gather their supporters and the first thing they do is hand out a weapon and teach someone how to use it. But instead, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5 that you're to love your enemies. And then he sits amongst a large crowd and what he hands out instead is bread. It's not some accidental moment. It's deliberate and it's demonstrating that he's not going to march his movement to a military drumbeat. But why hand out bread? Like, what's the significance of bread? 
for us as Americans, bread is like carbohydrates and things to hide from. And in ancient times, though, with great uncertainty of where your food might come from, if there's a famine, bread, to, to give out bread is to give out life. Jesus is saying that other revolutionary leaders, they distributed death. They left a trail of death, but Jesus was here to distribute life and to leave a trail of life behind him. That is the radical weapon of Jesus' kingdom. You can close your Bible. The cross of Jesus really was the enthronement of a new king, of the rightful king over the earth, where they'd place a royal robe on his shoulders, a crown of thorns on his head, where they'd write the inscription above his head, pronouncing him to be king, and finally lifting him up, not on a throne, but on a cross. Jesus had said it in Mark 10, 45. He said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is set apart from every other founder, not just of a revolution, but even of a religion. In that their purpose was to live and merely be an example, where they'd live and say, follow me, be like me. And yet Jesus' purpose was to die as a substitute and sacrifice. Now, Trevor, of all the things to talk about, why are we talking about a kingdom today? Well, because I think our text shows you the crowning of a king, of heaven's king. But also because our world really is this broken, that it's good for us to slow down and remember that Jesus is king. It's good for us to remember what he's promising us in, in the future with him in his kingdom. Our world's so broken to, to imagine, you, we would not have believed 10 years ago that someone would live stream an attack on a grocery store. It should shock us, but it seems like it doesn't anymore that we hear about another attack on a church. An elementary school shooting is, is so hard for us to process. If you're like me, I started looking at the list of names and their ages next to them. I couldn't finish the list. This last week, it was local schools because of a copycat being given a threat that someone would bring a gun into a school. And so local schools went on lockdown. Because seeing tragedy like that now triggers in some people how funny would it be to get a reaction? Our world is so very broken. But we're in four months into a war between two civilized first world countries who have nothing to gain except one person's power, where innocent lives are being lost. And that's not to mention that we feel like at times we're surrounded by illness and suffering every direction we look. When we get a lull where we don't know someone ill or suffering or don't feel that in our lives personally, we take a deep breath and kind of brace for impact. It's interesting, as a follower of Jesus, I don't have a future like maybe other religions do. We're in the end, finally, I'm in power. Because I know that I'm part of the problem too. I'm a cause of human brokenness because I myself am broken. What I look forward to, what I long for, is the day where Jesus is king again, where our God reigns over all of creation. I don't want or need more power. He does. He needs to, to be enthroned in my own life personally, and I want to be in the place where he's enthroned on this earth once again personally. And I know what it'll be like because Jesus' teachings tell us what it'll be like. Because the Sermon on the Mount shows us what life there will look like. Because his kingdom stories, his parables, paint a portrait of what it will be like to be where Jesus is king. Because even his miracles give you a glimpse into what it will be like to be part of the future kingdom of God. Where he is king over redeemed and restored people and place. His miracles aren't just the suspension of the natural order. They're ultimately the restoration of the natural order, where people are right and whole again, where things are as they should be. You see, each miracle of Jesus, I don't think we're supposed to read simply as a challenge to our minds so much as we're meant to read them as a promise to our heart that the world that you and I want is coming, where tears are wiped away and wrongs are made right and people are made whole and people are welcomed home. 
We don't have an answer for the why every time that there's suffering in the world. We don't have an answer for the why of each time we personally suffer. We do, however, know what the answer is not. The answer is never that God doesn't care. Because God would come and be treated like this to demonstrate his care. Because God would come and be treated like this to win back creation, to redeem it so that he could once again restore it. I don't have answers for why the world is so deeply broken. I don't have an answer for for why I suffer each time I feel pain or anxious and overwhelmed by what I'm facing. But I always know what the answer is not. The answer is never that he doesn't care. He cared so much that he wore a crown that was thorns, where he would have people take a knee before him to mock him, where he would be lifted up not just on a throne, but on a cross with his arms outstretched. Jesus, we look forward to a future kingdom. And the more difficult life is, and the more broken our world seems to become, Jesus, we long so much more for that kingdom. We long for the day, for what we call heaven, where you come here, where heaven and earth have collided again, where wrongs are made right and tears are wiped away. Jesus, we want to be with you there. But Jesus, we also believe we do live in a tension of a now and not yet, that we have a king residing in our heart that does free us from the entrapments of this world system, its brokenness. Jesus, free us today then. And Jesus, use us today to be people's experience, their introduction to what it's like to be in the place where Jesus is king. Jesus, it's good timing for us to be at a story that shows the darkest hour of human history where even those who are appointed to uphold justice are the ones taking the life of the one person who walked this earth, sinless and perfect. We're looking at such extreme brokenness, and what we find there is still beauty and love. There's grace. Jesus, we're captivated by you. Jesus, that you're this gracious, that you're this loving. Jesus, also, though, that you're this sovereign that you saw these things coming, that these things played into your master plan of rescuing this world and one day pronouncing that you make things new again. Jesus, we look your direction because we need to hear those words. For people who are here who are hurting, who are overwhelmed, Jesus, I pray that they would believe by faith those words that you make things new again. Jesus, we thank you In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.